InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. Thanks, Charlie. When it comes to energy, there's a major untapped resource as close as the nearest breeze. InfoTrack's Roy Mackey has a fascinating interview you'll want to hear. Roy? Thanks, Chris. The rising cost of oil and natural gas are causing many Americans to wonder, where will the world get its next energy fix? Are there alternatives, and how viable are they? Well, Jim Johnson is the site operations engineer at the National Wind Technology Center, which is part of the U.S. Department of Energy. Jim, welcome to InfoTrack. Thank you. Is wind energy a practical alternative to fossil fuels? Very much so. It's a very good alternative, and supplements actually burning of natural gas very well. How do these wind turbines actually work? If you want to think about it in real simple terms, they work the opposite of a hairdryer. They actually take air or wind blowing through blades and generate electricity by changing energy in the wind to mechanical energy and then into electrical energy. And I presume these would need to be in very large areas, maybe wide open areas, right? Uh, Yes. The wider open, I guess, if you want to look at it that way, the better from the standpoint of turbulence and atmospheric mixing. Offshore applications are very good as well. But there are places near urban areas and so on that could be developed and actually be very good wind sites. Are certain regions of the country uh, better suited towards this in terms of wind conditions? Well, yes. The windy states are generally in the Great Plains. In the United States, North and South Dakota lead the pack. And pretty much any of the Great Plains states, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Texas, eastern Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, those are all pretty good states, pretty good places for wind energy, wind farms. And as far as how much electricity they can generate, can you give us some kind of understandable measurement there? Sure. The largest wind farm was just constructed in Colorado at the end of 2003, and there was 106 machines there, produces about 160 megawatts of energy. That's about roughly one-third the size of a fairly moderately sized coal-fired plant here in the United States. The amount of energy that's produced by it varies with the wind speed, and the amount of customers it would serve also vary depending on the load. But it would certainly be able to supply something on the order of maybe five or 6,000 customers. Some of these towers are awfully tall, aren't they? They can be. It depends on what's called micro-siting. They use information that's been gathered over a period of year or more, to uh, understand what the local conditions are. And then based on the turbulence intensity and other variables with interferences, the height of the turbine is determined. But there's a general rule that they are about 0.8 to 1.2 times the rotor diameter. So if it's a 100-meter rotor diameter, a fairly large machine, you're going to look at a tower height that's, you know, 100 meters tall or a little taller maybe. These would seem to be pretty expensive to set up initially though, right? Well, the capital cost is a little high, especially when you compare to other conventionally fired plants like coal or natural gas, but there are no long-term costs, no fuel costs, for instance. Something that has impacted wind energy in the last few months or year or so is the price of steel, and it's also uh, become such a a, a demand-style market that the price of wind energy has gone up some. A year or more ago, it was probably eight or $900 a kilowatt, and now it's probably $1,200 a kilowatt. We're talking with Jim Johnson from the National Wind Technology Center here on InfoTrack, and we're learning a little bit about wind energy as a possible alternative to coal or oil or natural gas. Jim, I've read that a lot of small communities in the nation's heartland are struggling economically and are investing a lot of hope in the revenue that they could get from these massive wind farms out in farmland areas. That's true. Are those realistic hopes? I believe so. 
the natural fairly wide distribution requirement of wind farms is conducive to uh, having them installed in fairly large patches, if you will, in places like ranches and farms, and they don't impact, once the construction is done, the farm or ranch very much at all. In fact, the amount of land usage is very, very minimal. You can go back to using the land more or less like it was used before, and yet at the same time, they can earn between $1,000 and $3,000 per machine per year just for having the machine on their property. I understand, though, on the other hand, there are a lot of not-in-my-backyard responses to proposals to build wind farms. Well, I I don't know how prevalent that is. I know of one really, really uh, well-known case in the Nantucket Sound area off Massachusetts. That's certainly an area where there's no technological reason why that wind farm couldn't be built. But other places, I've heard of some small resistances in places where folks don't want them close to their homes or something like that. I'm just curious, do these turbines make much noise? Pretty quiet, really. Uh, Modern machines are around 55, 56 decibels, pretty quiet. You can stand underneath the machine when it's operating under full power and have a normal conversation. You mentioned putting these off the coastline. Do they need to be near a coastline, or could they be located far out of sight, say in the middle of the Great Lakes or the Gulf of Mexico? The answer is yes. They can be located in either place. They don't need to be near the coastline at all. What makes the proximity to the coastline more viable is the depth of the body of water that they're going to be installed in because it relates to the kind of foundation or tower or floating platform that's necessary to support the machine and also the distance that the uh, electrical lines need to be brought back to shore. I also understand that there are at least some wildlife concerns. There have been some reports of migratory birds killed at some wind farms. Yes, specifically that's more or less a single area, and that's in the Altamont Wind Farm in California, east of San Francisco. They've killed some birds because at the time that the machines were installed, an evaluation about what birds might be affected wasn't done. It was more than 20 years ago. And now they're looking at ways to try and alleviate that problem, either by shutting the machines off during certain periods of the year or removing the machines entirely, all of which is up for negotiation. I'm told it's just now gone into court. And there is another place in the Appalachians, too, where there are bats being affected, and that's under study right now. If you pick a number like 30,000 birds killed, which is a pretty big number, wind turbines in the United States account for less than one of those 30,000 kills. Buildings by far are much, much worse on migratory birds than anything else. What do you think it would take to really get wind power to gain some momentum in the U.S.? I think it's got pretty good momentum right now. Um, The biggest problem right now is the demand. There's so much pent-up demand that the manufacturers can't stay up with it, but it is really taking off. I think a lot of folks might remember their grandparents who farmed, may have had windmills on their farms or their properties. Yes. Is there any practical way that someone could get any wind power running in their home? Sure. Would that be of any value? Sure. The smaller the machine, the higher the cost of energy, and the payback period ends up being a little longer, in some cases exorbitantly long because of the cost of the machine. But certainly as more and more machines are built and optimized for that particular use, the costs will come down and you'll see paybacks that are in the 15-year range or 12-year range, something like that. And smaller machines are being designed to make direct connection to the grid if you have a grid-connected home where you get paid what you would normally pay for your electricity. Essentially, turning the meter backwards is an opportunity for wind to really make an impact on the residential customer. So you would be actually selling electricity back to the power company? That's right. Every utility commission or regulatory agency that covers each utility in different states has different laws or rules about that. Are there any websites that you recommend? Lots of them. We have one at NREL, NREL.gov, 
that has quite a bit of information under the wind heading. And then there's the Department of Energy website, eren.doe.gov slash wind. That's the one that has the most information. Very interesting information. Jim Johnson from the National Wind Technology Center. Thank you for joining us on InfoTrack. No problem. And for InfoTrack, I'm Roy Mackey. All of us live in a world of technology. But could life be better if we hit the off switch and got back to basics? Stay tuned. Don't go away. InfoTrack will be back right after this.